To put it another way, we don't mistrust ourselves enough. So I changed the title, even though it's not as catchy, from self-doubt to flawed self-perception. So it's accurate, but not as catchy. So if you would, remain seated. We're going to read together from the screen our verses for today, Revelation 3, verses 7 to 13. Let's read this together. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Today's letter was written to the Christian church in the city of Philadelphia. Now, the city of Philadelphia was named after a king's brother. It was located between the cities of Sardis and Laodicea, which were two other cities that had churches that received letters. It was on a trade route, which was good for business. And it was in a volcanic region, which meant it had good soil for growing food. But because it was an active volcanic region, there were earthquakes. Now, I've shared about the cities each week in part because I want to remind us that these are real people that Jesus is writing to. They had families and jobs and they had neighbors and they had all kinds of things. They had same kinds of issues and problems that we do going on. And Jesus is writing to this church, to these people in the city of Philadelphia. And he begins this letter as he does every other one, saying something about himself. Today he says that he is the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Now that's kind of cryptic, it's a little short, it's a little... Um, can be a little confusing. When he talks about holy and true and he puts those two words together, that is a way to refer to God. And so Jesus is claiming to be God again. There's some who have read the Bible and say, you know what, Jesus never claimed to be God. Actually, you read the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You read these letters and it becomes very clear. Jesus is saying over and over again that he is God. Then he says he has the key of David. Well, this is a reference to the Messiah. 
God had promised King David hundreds of years before that one of his descendants would rule forever. Not just rule. Now, it used to be a common saying back then, O king, live forever. Okay, they said that, but they knew it wasn't going to happen. Okay, when God says, no, there's going to be a son who is going to rule forever. He's the Messiah. He's the one who's going to come and going to make things right. He is the one who's going to restore what's been broken by people like us, and we've contributed to that. And so Jesus is saying is he is God's Messiah. And then he says something kind of strange. He says he opens and nobody can shut what he opens. He shuts and nobody can open what he shuts. This is a picture of Jesus' power and authority. You know, it's like the parent who's holding the door open and the little two-year-old is trying to shut the door. And they're trying to wiggle it and they're not going anywhere with it. And that's kind of this picture. And what you see in, in almost every letter is there's some reference to Jesus' power and authority, which leads me to ask a question. What kind of Jesus do you want? Do you and I want the kind of Jesus that he talks about in each of these letters? A king who has power and authorities, which means he has authority to speak and to tell us how to live, but he's also a king who loves us and has sacrificed himself for us. That's the kind of king we need. Do we want that kind of king or do we want a king who will help me satisfy what I want? That's often, the, if we're honest, the kind of king we want when he's telling us about the kind of king that we need. But Jesus talking about the opening and he can't shut and the shutting could also have to do with the Jews in that city and in other places that denied Jesus as the Messiah. Now the Jews would tell you they were God's chosen people and they were. He also tells them at the very beginning, I, I, there wasn't anything special about you that made me choose you. Just want to make sure you got that, guys. And God used the Jewish nation to bring the Messiah and to preserve the Old Testament. But for the most part, when you read the Old Testament, you'll see the Jews misunderstood God's purposes and even many of the Jews in Jesus' day. Now, I think it is very possible that the Jews in, in the day this letter was written were thinking that they were the only pathway for all the other people to come to God. That is, in a sense, they thought they were the door to God. Well, they weren't. They were supposed to be attractive examples of God's people to the others around them. They were supposed to be pointers to God. They were supposed to be, as has already been said, a light to the nations. To a large extent, they failed on all of this. But it prompts a question. If you're part of the Christian church today, how is the Christian church doing? Not so good. Not as good as we would like. Then Jesus talks about the situation and pulls this idea of the door again, and he says to the Christians there, Jesus has set before you an open door that no one can close. And I believe this is a, G a way of Jesus saying he is the only way to eternal life. In fact, he even says in the book of John, John quotes him as saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That the means exclusive, the only way. Nobody gets to God the Father except through Jesus. 
That's a very exclusive statement, and this matches it. And there are some people that are upset at Jesus making such an exclusive claim. How can it be possible that there's only one way? <clears throat> Actually, turn that question around. How can it be possible that there is a way at all? Because if we're honest, we realize every one of us have rejected God in some way. We've turned away from God. We don't deserve God to be good to us, to give us any any kindness, and yet he does offer a way at huge expense to himself, his own son dying in our place so that we can be reconciled to him. And why is it that all of us left to ourselves by our own nature assume we deserve every good thing we can get and we often ignore our own failures? That's part of our human nature, part of our selfishness that we do this. So Jesus says, here's this door. I provided you a way to get to God, and nobody can shut it. Which is another way of saying that when God adopts a person as his child, and God talks about people in the Christian church being adopted by God, that's a picture he uses. When a person is adopted by God, they're never going to be unadopted. They will never be rejected by God. What Jesus is talking about is eternal security. That God gives us this relationship and he will never lose it. That relationship will lose us. And then Jesus says to these people in this city, I know that you have but little power. And here's the danger. It's an implied one. And it's the flawed self-perception. And there's a related question. Do you and I see ourselves the way Jesus sees us? He's God. He sees reality. Do you, what do you and I see when we look? We'll come back to that. Well, I think it's possible that the Jews in Philadelphia and the other people in the city, as they looked at this Christian church, saw it as small and insignificant and then treated them accordingly. You see, the early Christian church did not have any power the way people of that day thought of power. They didn't have a lot of money. They were not a large influential religious group yet. They became one many years later. They didn't have powerful political connections. In, in all the ways that they considered power back then, the church, Christian church didn't have it. And so I believe it's very possible that the others looked at this group and saw them as small and insignificant. In fact, it wasn't until the 300s AD, if you've ever read through history, when the Roman Emperor Constantine began favoring the Christian church, first made it legal to be a Christian so you didn't get persecuted, then it became favored, and then he began giving gifts of property and money to the Christian church. Only then did the church begin to have some sense of what we think of as power, and it turned out it was not a good thing for the church for that to happen. Before then, the church was marginalized, Christian church, and it was persecuted. But it's also possible if the people around them saw the church as small and insignificant that the people in the church also saw themselves as small and insignificant. And if they thought that, they were not looking at themselves through God's perspective. And this is one of the aspects of the danger. I mean, aren't all of us tempted, without even thinking about it as we look at this church or any other church, in the United States, to think of it in the terms of, of the standards for success that we talked about last week for churches, size, and activity, and money. 
And aren't we tempted to think, oh, but we're not that big. What can we do? Or we might be tempted to think, you know what? America has lost Christendom. We've lost what was there in the early 1900s where the Christian church was respected and it had influence in the culture. Oh, that we could gain it back. I realize God has walked us to where we are today, where we are, the Christian church has been losing influence. And we're looking a lot more like the Christian church that was there in the early Christian church. In our denomination, the PCA, over 80% of the churches have 100 members or less. And I didn't go look it up to see what the numbers were, but if you look at all Christian churches in the United States, I think the number of small churches would be similar or even more. And again, we so often think that small means unattractive, less useful, not as effective. We're going to talk a little bit more about flawed self-perception in a little bit. There's two things I want you to notice as we continue. One is Jesus commends the Christians not for their power, not for their influence, but for their faithfulness. And secondly, if you look at all seven of the letters, you'll realize there is no reproof in this letter. Jesus does not say directly or indirectly, oh, you might have these couple things that are good in you, but I have all these things against you. He doesn't say that at all. In fact, in verse 8, what he says is, you have kept my word, you have not denied my name. And then later on, he says, you've kept Jesus' word about patient endurance. Now, they couldn't take any credit for any faithfulness or endurance, and we can't either because you and I are not naturally obedient or faithful. God is the one who makes us faithful. God is the one that enables us to keep his word and to endure. And if you again look at the letters, you'll see that, that this phrase patient endurance has shown up more than once. Okay, what is patient endurance? It means you endure or you put up with something that you'd rather not have to. And not only do you put it up, put up with it, but you endure without complaining. Okay, yeah. As my dad used to say, I've gone, I quit preaching, I'm gone to meddling. Okay, now, I talk about complaining, not just your words, but your attitude as well. There's a true account that I've shared this before. A pastor was teaching in his church about patience and especially about not complaining. And he gave the class an assignment. He said, for the next week, I want to make it, you to make it your goal to not complain at all, not even once. And he said, if you do, ask God to forgive you, make a note of it, what was the situation, and let's talk about it next week. Well, the week goes on, everybody comes back. First thing the pastor says is, okay, how'd you guys do with your assignment? And nobody was going to look him in the eye. So he asked the question, did anybody not complain all week? And a guy raised his hand. Well, the pastor was shocked, and so was the rest of the class. And he looks at him, he says, what in the world did you do? How did you manage this? And the guy said, well, it was simple. I just didn't talk all week. <laughs> the complaining isn't just what we say, it's our attitude as well. And why is it that we have this difficulty with patience and with enduring things? Well, one of the reasons, there are many, there are many but one that came across my desk twice this week. Eternity amnesia. You laugh. Amnesia means you forget. 
Eternity amnesia means you forget that about eternity. It's, it's the idea that a person sees this life as all there is. Or if you say, well, no, there actually is an eternity, what, what that person does is basically lives as if this life is all that is important. And when you and I do that, that means we try to do everything in this life. We measure everything by what happens in this life, our success, our, our happiness, everything else. It all, we get the blinders on and all we look at is this life. When in fact, this life is very, very short compared to eternity. And there's a whole lot more to life than just our desires. Well, then Jesus goes on and he talks about the Jews and he calls them the synagogue of Satan. It's the second time he's done it. And he is talking about Jews who the church came out of the Jewish nation. It came, came out of Jerusalem. But these are Jews that have rejected Jesus as God's Messiah. They've been given God's word. They've grown up memorizing it, probably knowing more than you and I know from the Old Testament. And yet, when they came to Jesus and they'd heard about him, some of them had probably even seen him. They were because either from their own standards or their culture standards, they had a problem. And their big problem is one that you and I would not naturally think of, and that was crucifixion. Because it's not done anymore today. But then it was. Romans did it. It was a form of terror, terrorism. It was a form of keeping all of these uh, nations that they had subdued in line. It was a horrible, painful way to die. It was also, back then, considered one of the most shameful ways to die. And here was the problem. People were saying, Jesus, so they had this group of people called Christians saying Jesus is the Messiah, but we know that he was crucified. He was killed on a cross. And they just could not connect the two. They said, God's Messiah is, is going to be victorious. He's going to do great things. He's going to restore He's not going to die shamefully, miserably like that on a cross. And so they said he can't be. So they're still going to the synagogue. every. They're going to church every week and singing the same songs they've sung, reading the same Old Testament they've read. But they've rejected God's Messiah because Jesus was and is God's Messiah these Jews had to ignore Isaiah's prophecies about the suffering servant. But they chose to, just as people today judge Jesus by their own standards and reject him. Then Jesus says this. He gives a promise to the Christians there. He says he will keep them from the hour of trial that is coming to try those who dwell on the earth. Now, there are multiple understandings of this verse. And they're all different understandings. But here's one of the ways that, that you and I, when you read a verse in the Bible and you wonder, does it mean, what does it mean or does it really mean what I think it means? One of the ways to check is to take the ways you see that verse and compare it to the rest of the Bible. Does this understanding match what the rest of the Bible says? Well, as you read the rest of the Bible, here's one thing this verse cannot mean. 
It cannot be a blanket promise from Jesus that these people would have no more problems. It can't. Because nowhere in the Bible do you see that. That kind of a promise. What the Bible talks about is God says he will be with us. That he will protect his people. And walk us through like Psalm 23. He will walk with the sheep through the valley of the shadow of death. He will walk with us through the hard times. The difficult and challenging times. Here's another thing. The, the whole key in that verse for saying, oh, well, I think it says no more problems, is that word from. Jesus will keep you from the hour of trial. Well, it turns out that the word that's translated here in English, from, can also be translated through. Then it reads like this. Jesus will keep you through the hour of trial. He will protect you. He will be with you. Now that you see all through Scripture. That he will be with us through that situation. And it matches what you see, for example, in 1 Corinthians 10.13. God promises he's provided us a way to go through the trial, obediently, through the difficulty. And he also promises he will never allow us more than we can bear as we depend on him. So, again, there's a question. You kind of hold that lightly. But certainly what we do see is God's promise, Jesus promised to be with us to strengthen us, to protect us, and to watch over us. And you'll notice in all the other letters, nowhere in the letters, in all seven, do you see any promises or mentioning that God's going to remove all of the persecution, that he's going to remove all of the rejection and all of the marginalization that was going on with the church then. He doesn't promise that. He gives another promise. He says, I am coming soon. Well, again, you've got to ask the question, what does soon mean? He's not saying it quite like we using it the way you and I do. And I say that because it's been 2,000 years since he wrote the letter. But remember this, God also tells us that with him, 1,000 years is like a day. So he is coming. He could come at any time, and he will come because he's promised. And he keeps his word. And Jesus gives Christians his spirit in the meantime. He hasn't left us alone. And then he gives a command, one that we've seen before in other letters. Hold fast what you have. Cling to Jesus. You see, the Christians in Philadelphia were not strong naturally, not spiritually. They didn't have any strength. None of us do spiritually. But we are strong as Christians when we remember God's goodness, we remember God's power, and we depend upon him. See, Jesus had said just a few words earlier than this don't have much power well that's true but little power doesn't mean hopelessness because God is the one who provides the power and then he closes the letter saying this he grants to those who conquer to those who listen to him and follow him and obey him he will make each Christian a pillar in the temple of God you will never leave God's temple now the New Testament talks about Christians as we have to put it in quotes, living stones. God puts his spirit in a person. That gives us spiritual life. Back then, they're, big, they're, they're bigger buildings. They built with stone. And so the picture you have is that God's temple isn't a physical building like this is. God's, God's temple is made up of his people. In fact, that fits where he says, 
I don't know how many times, starting from Old Testament through the end of Revelation, I will be your God and you will be my people and he will be with us. Then Jesus says this, he will write his name on each person, each Christian, the name of God, the new Jerusalem, and Jesus. But when you read it, the verse, what he actually says is, I'll write on each Christian the name of my God, my city, and my name. Christians are Jesus' possession. He chose us, and he loves us. Now, if you remember when I talked about the danger, self-perception, there was a question that went with it. Do we see ourselves the way Jesus sees us? And I ask the question because here's the danger. If we don't, then we have a flawed self-perception. If you and I don't see, our, see ourselves the way Jesus sees us, the way the Bible shows us who we are, then we have a flawed self-perception. Well, here's the related question. How does Jesus see every Christian? First, needy and flawed. That is reality. It does nothing for your ego. But that is reality. We are needy and flawed. And for every person that, that spends eternity in heaven, the flawed part will be gone, but the needy part will still be there. Because we're still depending on God to give us life and to preserve us and everything else. But you know, if, if all we did is concentrate on needy and flawed, that would be, lead to a problem. Because you and I know that when people are needy and flawed, it is so easy then to be rejected. The next two words then remove any of that fear. Yes, we are needy and flawed, but we are loved and accepted by Jesus. Not, again, because of anything good in us, because he chose to love us and accept us. And then he tells us this. He's not even going to leave us where he found us. He's going to change us. He's going to transform us. And why is this important? Because it is only as you and I see our need for God, for his protection, for his wisdom, for his strength, for everything it is that God gives us, it's only as you and I see our need for God and all that he gives that you and I will turn to him. Let's turn it around and put it in the negative. If you and I don't see our need, we won't turn to God. If we don't see our need, we won't turn to God. If we do see our need, we will. And here's where the kingdom-centered prayer sheet comes in. I called it that for another reason, and I left the name. This was in your email with a sermon supplement. I do have copies back in the back for those who um, didn't get the email. And it's three verses and then some things to pray, suggestions to pray. And these verses and the prayers show us one, our need, and secondly, they show us how Jesus answers and what he will do. Let me just briefly go over these three verses and the comments that I have in the, in the paper. First one, Matthew 6, 9 and 10, which is part of Jesus' model prayer, where he showed us this is how you can pray. And notice he begins talking about to God the Father. Hallowed means praise. God, I want your name to be praised, to be honored. And then he says, your kingdom come, and your will be done on earth as, as it is in heaven. Well, because of sin, because of the selfish nature that all of us have, uh, our default attitude is, oh, no, no, my kingdom come, my will be done. Okay? 
Just watch a toddler. Parents do not have to teach little Johnny and little Janie, now here's how you be selfish. Okay? You don't have to teach them. They got it already. Why? Because it's our nature that we're born with. The Bible calls that sinful, selfish nature the flesh. That's what we bring into a relationship with God. He brings his spirit and all that is good. How do these two get along? The flesh and the spirit. It's the second verse. Galatians 5, 16 and 17. But I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. The desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. We live in a world, a physical world, but there's also a spiritual world that is pushing us to turn away from God. That world doesn't rest. As I said, we are all born with this flesh. The flesh doesn't rest. It constantly is whispering, shouting, screaming, crying, complaining, whining, working everything it can do to get us to follow after our own desires. And you can see so clearly in these verses, the flesh is opposed to the spirit. Okay? What this means is that every Christian needs constantly, constantly to be turning to the Spirit, God's Spirit. And saying, I need you. I need you to work in me. I need you to remind me of what is true. I need you to help me as I read the Bible to understand what it means. God, I need you to help me to understand reality as you see it. Myself and other people, the world around us, and you. We need to be constantly turning and then depending on the Spirit, listening, following what He says. Because we have this battle going on within us that doesn't stop. And then the third set of verses, Hebrews 3, 12, and 13, is written to Christians. You can see it with the third word. Take care, brothers. It's written to Christians, but look at what it says. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. Now, that's not talking about us being rejected by God now. Because he's the one that says when he adopts us, never get unadopted. When he chooses us, we never get unchosen. But we can turn away, just like children turn away from their parents. And we turn away from friends. We can turn away from God. So verse 13, exhort every, uh, one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Now, I think I talked last week and maybe the week before about when you go fishing and you got your hook, okay, you're going to put bait on it or a lure, something attractive to the fish. You're, I don't know what it would be, but you're not going to put a little fishy skull and crossbones on your hook that says danger, death, stay away. No, you're going to put a worm, a cricket. You're going to put something that the fish wants. It doesn't find out about the hook until it swallows it. And that's the deceitfulness of sin. Sin promises, oh, you have all these desires, wonderful, go after them. You'll satisfy them all. And maybe you get a little bit of satisfaction. But then, everything just turns to dust in your mouth. And the death comes. We're drawn away by our own desires. We saw that from the book of James. Book of James. And when we get drawn away, what are we doing? 
we're turning our back on God, and at that moment, we're not believing God anymore. He warns us, be careful. <laughs> There's a hook in that bait, okay? There's death with that turning away from God. There's harm that happens to you and other people, and we don't listen. We ignore, and that's the core. The core of turning away from God is unbelief. We're not believing God or God's word. And here I'm not saying we've totally rejected the Bible. Usually it happens in a very specific situation, in a moment, lots of different specific situations. I'll give you one example. You have your favorite show and your favorite spot on the couch. And somebody in your family has the audacity to be sitting in your spot wanting to watch something else when everybody knows it is my spot and when I sit in my spot, I watch my show. And so what are you going to do? You're going to let them have it. You're going to try to make sure they don't ever forget this is my spot, my night, my show. Nobody interferes with that. What has happened? Our, our, our view of life has now all come down to this one desire. I'm going to have my spot and watch my show. And I don't care what I have to do to get it. I'm going to get it. What have we done? We have totally forgotten. Talk about amnesia. We've totally forgotten God's word, his command to love, to be patient, to give, all of these other things. doesn't mean you never get to watch your show. Okay? But there's a whole lot more going on. But we forget all of that. And so our life should, the Christian life should be a life of growing in faith and listening to God and trusting him and doing what he says and repentance because we're not perfect and we still choose, you know, it's my spot on the couch. I'm going to get it, do whatever. When that happens, God calls us to repent. That is to turn back to him, to delight in him. And these, the, these verses help us see Again, our need. And they also help us see how God provides, what, where he directs us as we go through this. So let me close with a couple of questions. Do you see yourself the way Jesus sees you? Secondly, do you see all that God gives to us? He gives us every good thing we have. Even if we don't see his fingerprint on it, it's there. Do you see eternity? that God made us for eternity with him and he's preparing us for that. Do you see how great Jesus is? As he looks at us, he sees all the need, all the flaws, and he's chosen that he's going to love us and he's going to work in our lives every day. Do we see that? And are we thankful? These prayers and the verses help us remember that. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you do see us just as we really are. And you tell us that you've chosen to love us so we can admit our need and our flaws and not have to fear being rejected because you've said you've chosen to love us and to accept us. Lord, help us to, to help that to go from our head to our heart. Help it to be a part of how we live and how we see ourselves and see others. Lord, we thank you for your goodness, for your love. Thank you that we can come this morning and be reminded of your truth and we can celebrate your goodness. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's respond with a song.